All right. Thank you guys for that. Uh, those of you who are musical in the room, uh, you might have picked up how difficult that first song was for them to play. Um, so why don't we give them a hand for all the work that they put in there. I got a text as I was coming up here, Zach, from my wife that said, Zach killed it. That's positive. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a, that's a sweet song. That's one of my favorites. <clears throat> well, uh, we're continuing in our study of 1 John, kind of slowly making our way through this, this book here. And uh, we probably should have a, a couple more weeks left um, in, in this letter. So if you would, just go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. And uh, as you're turning there, um, a few years ago, there was a story that was floating around on the internet about an offer that Bill Gates made to somebody who was interviewing him on television. The journalist asked Mr. Gates, she said, uh, Mr. Gates, what is the secret of your success? Well, initially, he didn't answer. And instead, Gates pulled out a blank check, and he told her to fill in whatever amount she wanted. This journalist, I mean, you can assure, you know, how, how that may have caught her off guard there. According to the account, though, the journalist refused, and then she asked him the question again. So, no, I don't want your check, so tell me, what's the secret of your success? Well, allegedly, Gates insisted that she take the check and fill it in with whatever she wanted a second time. But she refused again. She grabbed the check from him, and she tore it up, and she asked the question again, what, what's the secret of your success? So finally, Gates answered her, and she, he said, the secret of my success is that I do not miss opportunities like you just did. <laughs> now, who knows if that story is actually accurate or not. It was floating around on the Internet. Um, but could you imagine that? You're sitting there interviewing Bill Gates, and a blank check is offered to you by one of the richest men in the world. You'd immediately think, what's the catch? I know that's what I would think if I'm sitting there. Those kinds of offers are always too good to be true. Well, at least almost always. That's because tonight, the Apostle John is going to tell us about a genuine offer and an arguably far better offer than Gates' blank check. It's God's promise to give us whatever we ask for from Him. And God is far more wealthy in every possible way than Bill Gates. His fruit is far sweeter. His wealth is an eternal and enduring kind of wealth. He's made us His sons and daughters in Christ, and we have His ear, and He's told us to ask. But there's a catch, too, if we could call it a catch. In order for these prayers to be certainly answered, for our spiritual check to be cashed, so to speak, we must pray in line with what He wants. We're to ask according to His will. But as we're going to see, His will is the absolute best thing His people could ask for. John's going to show us tonight that a significant opportunity lay before us as the people of God. We have the opportunity through our intercessions to see eternal changes wrought in the here and now. 
we're going to see that God promises to work through our prayers to transform and preserve His people. And He does not want us to miss this opportunity. So if you're not already there, just go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. As John brings this really sweet letter to a, a close, he uses the opportunity to remind us of several truths we can be absolutely certain of. So he's kind of bringing this letter down. In chapter 5, beginning in verse 13, really is the, is the outro of this letter. You could think, think of it like that. And he wants to leave lingering in our minds a few certainties, a few things that we can know absolutely. And the first certainty that he leaves us with is the certainty that our prayers will be answered. Our prayers will be answered. Look with me in verse 13. He says, I write these things to you. This is a reference to the whole letter. Or I have written these things to you. It would be a better translation. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. It's kind of a summary purpose statement of the letter. And, flowing from this, this is the confidence that we have toward Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask. And God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death, and I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So as John wraps up this letter, John wants the church to understand the significant opportunity that they have, that we have, to affect change in the lives of others through prayer. He knows that prayer is hard. He knows that we're tempted to misunderstand prayer or approach it half-heartedly or to minimize its significance. John wants us to understand the transforming power of prayer and our privilege that we have as God's children to pray. He wants us to see the tremendous opportunity that we have to affect change in the lives of others so that we will pray boldly, so that we'll pray confidently, so that we will pray with expectation. And so I'm calling tonight's message Praying with Confidence. Praying with confidence, because that's what John wants the people of God to do. And from our text tonight, we can draw out at least uh, three principles about prayer. All right, We can draw out at least three principles about prayer, that if we, if we understand them, we own them, we own these principles, they're going to motivate us to pray confidently for each other. And we're going to see fruit from these prayers. So three principles about prayer that are going to motivate us to pray confidently for each other. So we can start here. We could say confident prayer, number one, is fueled by knowing that we have God's ear. Confident prayer. If you want to pray with confidence, if you want to pray with boldness, you have to know that you have God's ear and all that that means. 
All right, look with me again in verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. John says that if we're going to pray confidently, we've got to know that we're reconciled to God, verse 13, and as a result, that we have God's ear. John wants us to deeply believe that God hears us when we pray. This promise fuels confident prayer. And so when we pray, when we come to God, we have to believe that He hears us. Now this confidence, like I said, it really starts back in verse 13. This confidence that we're heard by God. And it starts with the certainty that we belong to God. And, right? and that's kind of what this whole letter is, is about, to grow us in that confidence. Verse 13, John tells us that he's written this entire letter so that we would know that we have eternal life. He doesn't want us to be in doubt about this or be left wondering if we're saved or not. Because he knows that our confidence in prayer is tied directly to our assurance. You see that connection? Our confidence in prayer, our boldness, is tied directly to our assurance. When we know that we belong to God, when we know that our sins are forgiven and that we are in a right relationship with Him, when we know that He he loves us and He's welcomed us into His presence as His children, our boldness in prayer grows. It's the kid who's sure of his dad's love, right? He's not scared to ask his dad for things because he knows his dad's there. He knows his dad loves him. He knows his dad will provide And so, when he has a need, he goes. And that's John's point here. Confident prayer is based on the assurance that we know God. Verse 13. And when we do, we can be confident, John says in verse 14, that he really does hear us when we pray. Now, like we said just a minute ago, this promise comes with a catch or a caveat. Notice initially that if if we want to have God's ear then we must pray for the things that He wants. You see that in the text? We must pray according to His will, John says. If we ask anything according to His will, then He hears us. But what is that? What is the, what, when, he, when He's referring to prayers according to His will, what's He talking about? Well, he's talking about God's will as found in Scripture, in the black and white, what people have called His revealed will, what He's shown to us. This is not kind of a Hansel and Gretel where God's trying to teach you His secret will and leave you little breadcrumbs to figure it out with signs or intuitions or peace or any of these other things. He's talking about His revealed moral will, what we have in Scripture, what we know He wants. And we know that God wants some stuff revealed in Scripture. We know that God wants to save His people. We know that He wants to grow His people into His image. We know He wants to use His people for His mission. We know that He wants you to repent of sin. We know that He wants you to use your gifts. We know that He wants you to trust Him and grow in Him. We could go on and on. We're talking about those things that he, that's all over our, our Bibles that He has laid out for His people. But you could summarize it by saying that He wants to save and sanctify His people. 
good summary of his will. He wants to save and sanctify his people for his glory. Maybe we can tag that on there. And that's what the blank check promise is all about. When we pray these kind of prayers that are in line with his will. Now it doesn't mean that we can't ask God for good things. John's not worried about that right now. He's not talking about that. We can ask God for good things like a spouse or recovery from an illness for a good grade on an exam or the car that we want. But we don't have any guarantees that God will grant our requests. Or at least we don't have any guarantees like we do when we pray His moral will, John is saying. He can and often does grant these requests for good things, we might say. But John's not giving us a blank check for those things. But he is giving us a blank check for our requests that are in line with his moral will. Now, if I'm talking and you're like, ah, I couldn't even give me a blank check for whatever I want. Right? I just have to be in line with his moral will. If you're you're thinking that, then you do not understand the goodness of God's moral will. You don't understand it. Because if you understood it, this would be the greatest promise you could ever receive. Not to mention you don't understand how off-base and destructive your will can be when you ask for things from God. But God's will is perfect. It is the most peaceable. It brings the most joy to His people. It is the best thing for you that you could possibly walk in. It's utterly satisfying, and God promises to answer anything you might dare to ask Him in this vein. Notice how open-ended it is. We can ask, John says, for anything, whatever we ask, that's in line with His will. And when we pray for the things that God wants, John says we can be confident that God will answer. Not just answer, but we'll give you what you've asked for, he says. We'll give you what you have asked for. Look in verse 15. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, then we know that we have the requests that we've asked of him. We have those requests. That's a staggering promise. He is saying that when we pray God's will, we can know with certainty that God's going to answer that prayer. And we've got to know this when we come to pray. So when's the last time you prayed with that kind of confidence? When you said, Lord, I know that you want to see this believer overcome fear. And I pray that you bring them to repentance. I'm confident that you hear me and that you will answer that prayer. I don't know about your heart, but my heart is immediately tempted to doubt. Really? Like, it's that open? God is that? He's putting everything on the line here and saying, ask? What if he doesn't answer the prayer? What if it somehow doesn't work? I think we have what seems, when we, I think when we have what seems to be unanswered prayers, we begin to doubt promises like these. You're tempted to wonder if God hears you or if He cares. 
Or if He's going to accomplish the thing that you're praying for. Or if He's just going to do what He wants anyway because He's sovereign. So my prayers don't really matter. Those are all lies that we are susceptible to when prayer seems unanswered. So let's take a minute and let's troubleshoot unanswered prayer. Alright? Because I think that's a threat. Would you guys agree? Alright, let's troubleshoot unanswered prayer for a minute. Maybe we could call it seemingly unanswered prayer. So when God doesn't seem to be giving us what we're asking for, what, what, what should we be asking? How should we be thinking about this? Well, first, we need to ask the, the obvious question, are we praying according to His will? Like, meaning His revealed will, what we were just talking about. Do we know without a doubt, chapter and verse, that, that we are asking, what we're asking for is according to His revealed will? Sometimes we might be asking for things that God's not promised to provide, like we mentioned earlier. So when he says no, or not yet, we grow discouraged, and then we wonder if he actually hears us. When he's actually not, he's not tethered himself to fulfilling that particular request, at least not at that, that time. Are we praying according to his will? That's the first question you ask. Okay? So then, if we determine that we are praying his will in an area... Are we living in a pattern of unrepentant sin? Are we living in a pattern of unrepentant sin? Now, I'm not talking about just, okay, this, the sins of our heart that kind of spring up in temptation. Those kind of, I'm talking about known, habitual patterns of unrepentant sin. John has already told us there's a direct connection between our godliness and answered prayer. Listen to back in chapter 3, verse 22. You can just listen. He says, And whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Why? Because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. So, why do we receive from God? Why does He answer our prayers? Because we keep His commandments. We obey. We're obedient. We're growing in obedience. In other words, we're not living in patterned rebellion against Him. If you're living in unrepentant lust... If you're living in unrepentant anxiety, unrepentant anger patterns, if you're blame-shifting, not taking responsibility for these things, the Lord will not answer your prayers. So, if you're refusing to repent in an area, you can know that your prayers will not be as effective. A text that's that isn't, it's not just here, this is all over Scripture. The prayers of a righteous man avail much, right? About James is talking about that. Um, in 1 Peter, husbands, 1 Peter 3, 7, husbands are, are told to live with their wives in an understanding way, and if we don't, Christian husbands, their prayers will be hindered. God will close His ears to our prayers, to the prayers of believers, because we are living in unrepentant sin. Alright, so that may be a reason that your prayers are going unanswered. Well, number three, Let's say you're praying according to His will, and although you're not perfect, there's no flagrant sin in your life that you're ignoring. <clears throat> Ask yourself this. Consider this. Are you looking for God to answer according to your timetable or your expectations? Now, what do I mean by that? Your timetable, your expectations. Sometimes we pray, and we expect God to answer in that very moment. Right? We're praying according to His will. Lord, please deliver me from anger. Then get up from your prayer, hit that annoying roommate, and you get angry again. And you think, ah, he didn't answer, you know? 
Sometimes he answers in the moment, but oftentimes answers to prayer come later, or they come, and I should say, they come in conjunction with other things like discipleship and mind renewal and the put-off-put-on process and getting involved in the church, those kinds of things. Also, sometimes answers to prayer come in unexpected ways. Right? So they don't come according to your expectations. We could multiply examples on this, but let's take this one. The person who prays for patience. All right, Lord, grow me in patience. And all of a sudden, some difficulty comes into their life. <laughs> Often, I, you know, it would be interesting if we kind of had a written or a, an, an auditory record okay, of, of the prayers that people have prayed and then be able to kind of map that out to say, okay, God is actually bringing these scenarios into your life that you do not, or you're not connecting the dots to grow you in patience as an answer to your prayer. So, it, in other words, his answer, his granting of your request is coming in an unexpected way that you're not, you're not looking for. You weren't ready for. It sometimes takes, us, takes some time to, for us to connect the dots that God brought that circumstance in answer to that prayer. And it's achieving the very thing that we prayed for. All right, so that's just, just some ideas to get us thinking about unanswered prayer. But whatever, whatever's going on, we have to upend our doubts. When we hear the promise that God will certainly answer prayers according to His will. All right, we've got to go at those doubts and go at them hard. God says, according to this text, that we have His ear, and that having His ear means that we have what we request in some form or another. And that is hugely motivating. Do you realize that God uses your prayers to accomplish His sovereign will? He uses your prayers to accomplish His will both in your life and in the lives of others, the people that you pray for. He's promised that He will give you what you ask for when it's according to His will. So take Him up on that and pray. Now you might be thinking, well, that's very encouraging. Um, I, I get that. But could you be a little more specific? All right, that's, a, that's an open-ended, I'm glad it's open-ended, but could you spell out for me exactly the kind of things that I should be praying for? The kinds of things that I can be sure that God will answer. Well, yes. In fact, John does that next. In the rest of this paragraph, John gives us a specific, a concrete situation to pray, to pray about. A real-life scenario that he says we can be sure that God's going to answer in one way or another. This is pretty crazy, okay? So we can say it like this. Confident prayer is life-giving for erring church members. Confident prayer is life-giving for erring church members. Look in verse 16. He says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. So confident prayer is life-giving. John doesn't leave us in the abstract. He gives us a concrete scenario and says, pray for that. Pray confidently for that. And the scenario is anytime we see a fellow church member committing sin. 
That's when we intercede. Because we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's God's will that that brother or sister repent and grow. And so we're saying our our second principle like this. Confident prayer is life-giving for the erring church member. Now let's take a closer look at what John's saying here. Notice first that every church member is responsible to intercede when they're made aware of sin in the life of the congregation. You see that? John says, if anyone, if anyone sees, meaning anyone in the church, I think sometimes you guys are tempted to think that this kind of intercession is the pastor's job, or maybe a counselor's job, or maybe a boundless leader's job. But John's saying it's all of our jobs. John's saying it's everybody's job. We are all responsible to participate in intercession for each other. And notice next that this text implies that we are in close enough relationships with each other to observe patterns of sin. If anyone sees his brother committing sin, see that? If anyone sees his brother. So this is why body life is so vital. We cannot keep others at arm's length and hope to minister to them in any meaningful way. We won't know their needs in order to intercede. We won't know their weaknesses. And on the flip side, every single one of us at some point or another will be this erring Christian. We'll be the one that's, that's sinning a sin. Right? And so we will need people to pray for us. So this text implies that we're, we're in close enough relationships with each other to observe these, these patterns of sin. And next, notice that John specifically has fellow church members, fellow believers in view. He calls the struggling person a brother, meaning he's part of our spiritual family. He's someone who has clearly been born of God, to use Paul's terminology. This person is exhibiting faith. This person is loving the church. But in this moment, they've been deceived. They are in error, and they're caught in sin. John's going to tell us that when we intercede for believers, we can be confident that God's going to answer that prayer. And the reason I'm drawing this out is because we're not given the same blank check when we pray for unbelievers. God often does answer our prayers for their salvation. We'll talk about that at the end. But he nowhere gives us the kind of open promise like he does here for fellow believers. Now, I'm sure as we read this, uh, there's probably one phrase that kind of caught your attention, raised your eyebrows a little bit. What would that phrase be? Sin not unto death. (laughs) What does that mean? Um, We should probably talk about that. So, John describes this brother's sin as not unto death or not toward death. On the surface, it's a kind of weird way to talk about our sin as believers. And as weird as it sounds to us, it's actually profoundly encouraging. John is saying that from God's perspective, a sin of a genuine believer is not a sin unto death. Meaning, it won't ultimately lead to eternal death. 
Does that make sense? It's, it's literally, it's a sin toward death. So he's saying, if anyone sees a, a brother that's sinning a sin, not toward death, meaning it's not, this, this sin's not going to lead, lead to eternal death. Now you're probably thinking something like, okay, well, duh, Clay, we know that sin does not lead to our eternal death. Right? We're forgiven in Christ. Well, that's true, but if, if that's sort of your reaction to this, then you, you probably have too low a view of sin. What do I mean by that? We have to keep in mind that sin is always deadly. Sin is always deadly. One sin expelled our first parents from the garden. One sin led to the demise of the human race. Sin put Christ on the cross. The wages of sin is death, Paul says, every time. In other words, sin is always unto death. Sin is always deadly, and apart from divine intervention, it always leads to death. But John here is saying the sin of a believer is not unto death, even though it deserves death. How will it not lead to death then? That should be the question. Well, it's because the one who has believed in Jesus has already passed, John says, from death to life. In John 5, 24, lots of other places, that's one good example. When we've trusted Jesus, that means we've already passed from death to life. That means we've had our sins forgiven once and for all through the propitiation of Christ. 1 John 2, 12. But get this. Just because we're forgiven that doesn't mean that sin stops being deadly. Sin doesn't stop being poison. And when we sin, we still drink the poison. When we rebel against our Savior, even as a believer, it's as though we turn away from our experience of life. We don't lose our possession of eternal life, but our experience of it is diminished until we repent. Guilt sets in. Our hearts condemn us. We are defiled and we know it. It's almost as if we begin to experience death. If you're thinking, I've never thought of it that way. Quite honestly, I hadn't either. And what led me to this, we'll talk about it in a minute, is God saying that when the believer prays for them, God will give them life. Implying that the believer lacked life. Not the possession of it, but the experience of it. So we could say in the negative, we begin to experience death when we are in unrepentant sin. As I was studying this week, this is kind of a new thought, and I was like running back through the Bible, like in my mind, like, okay, let me think through this. And I found it so interesting that David described himself as experiencing death-like symptoms when he was in rebellion against Yahweh, when he had refused to repent of his adultery and murder, and he tells us about it in Psalm 32. He says his bones wasted away. His strength dried up. In another Psalm, Psalm 38, he's talking, not, I don't think about the same situation, or at least I'm not aware that it was the same situation, but he, it was, it's the same in the sense of he had sinned. Psalm 38, he talks about another time he sinned and how he felt. 
he describes it like this. He says, arrows sunk into him, metaphorically. There was no soundness in his flesh and no health in his bones. It says his wounds stunk and festered in a metaphorical sense. His sides were filled with burning. He was feeble and crushed. His heart throbbed. His strength failed him. And here it is, the light of his eyes had gone from him. Psalm 38. And that was all because of his sin. All because of his sin. So in a sense, to put it in John's terms, the believing David had begun to experience death-like symptoms spiritually because he had turned from his experience of life. It didn't make him an unbeliever, but he had willingly forfeited his experience of the life of God in its abundance via his sin. And you and I can identify, can't we? We know the feeling. Now that raises another question as we make our way back to 1 John here from those Psalms. How does life return to the erring believer? How does this believer who is in sin, how does he come again to experience the eternal life he already possesses? Well, if I weren't looking at this passage, I would say, by confession and repentance. 1 John 1.9, right? He's already told us that. And that's certainly true. But notice how it comes about in this text. Here, John implies that you and I have a responsibility toward that sinning brother, and it's to intercede for him. Now, this is incredible. John tells us in verse 16 that God promises through our intercession to return life to the erring believer. And God, verse 16, and God will give him life in response to our asking. He'll give life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. What does he mean? John is telling us that God, in response to our prayer, will restore. He promises to restore the experience of life to our erring brother or sister. But you might say, I thought that life is restored through confession and repentance. According to 1 John 1, 1.9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful enough to forgive us our sins and cleanse us, right? It is. So how do we bring these texts together? I think we could do it like this. What John is saying is that God works through our intercessions to bring others to repentance and to restore Him the experience of life. In fact, God promises to do that. <laughs> he promises to do that in response to our intercessions. We can pray people into repentance. Think about that for a second. Think about what this means for you. This means that at some level, you are directly responsible for the growth of others in this church via your prayers. 
How encouraging is that? Even if you're not quite sure how to disciple, even if you're like, I have no idea how to counsel people, right? Uh, guess what you can do? You can pray them into repentance and growth. You can pray them to maturity with the very confidence of God in your sails, with His promise behind you. God has promised to answer you. It might take a while. There might be some fits and starts, but He's promised to answer. That's behind this thing, all right? That's tremendously encouraging, tremendously incentivizing to pray. But it's also sobering. How so? Well, in some sense, do you realize if you fail to pray for those in sin, they may not be as Christ-like as they could be? Now, let me immediately caveat that. If you're the one in sin, you can't be blaming other people's lack of prayer for you for your sin. Okay? Just throw that out there. It's not the way it works. But on the other side of that, as we fail, as we are unfaithful to pray, I'm not talking about praying for 24 hours a day, okay? I'm saying just as we're unfaithful to pray for those that are in sin, they may not be as Christ-like as they could be. God's appointed means, in other words, His appointed means to bring believers to repentance, according to this text, is through the prayers of His people. It doesn't mean we don't lovingly confront. There's other texts that command us to do that. It doesn't mean we don't help them get counseling or discipleship or other things like that. We certainly do. The Bible's full of those commands. But John is drawing out here the power of intercession. Our prayers for others are directly linked to their repentance and growth, says John, to their experience of life. Now, if you turn over to Colossians, this begins to give us some insight on um, Epaphras. Just real quick. You don't even have to turn there. I just want to read it. It's not my notes. He says in, in chapter 4, verse 12 of Epaphras, this is one of Paul's co-workers, this principle that we're talking about here, that, that prayer is life-giving, gives us some insight into Epaphras. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So Epaphras is working hard in prayer. And Paul attributes at least some of their growth, their assurance in the will of God, to his intercessions that Paul no doubt heard him praying. For I bear him witness, verse 13, that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. He's sweating it out in prayer. And that's why these Colossians are standing mature. I had this thought. There's so many people that pray for me. And um, wife, friends, my parents, Pastor Brian. There's been points where Pastor Brian has come in my office and, you know, ask me, how am I doing? You know, you could read that something's hard, something hard's going on, so I'll kind of open up, and sin struggles, something I'm convicted over. And oftentimes, like, he won't counsel me, he'll just say, I'm, I'm going I'm to be praying for you. And every time, growth happens. 
It's like, it's in, and I was just, the Lord brought this to my mind as I was studying this passage. He is praying me to maturity by his faithful intercessions. So this is humbling to be on the receiving end, and it's incentivizing to be on the giving end of this. John is saying that we have, through our intercessions, the ability to pray people to maturity. God will grant us those requests. So I realize this has been a long point, so let's just step back and apply it for a second. Don't worry, the application's pretty straightforward, all right? So if we're thinking about, all right, wow, this is super incentivizing, what do we do with this? Well, first, ask yourself, are you in close enough relationships with people to know their struggles so that you can intercede? Do you know people well enough to be able to, to pray for them? And do they, know, do they know you well enough for them to pray for you? So get to know people. Open yourself up. That would be the first applicational point kind of flowing out of this, this passage. Next, ask yourself, what do you do when you see sin in a friend? What's your impulse when you see sin in a fellow believer right here in Boundless, when they're caught in sin? We're often tempted to gossip to our friends. We're tempted to point fingers or think, glad I'm not like that person. You know, I don't struggle with that. Or we may just turn a blind eye to it. That's just them, you know, whatever. They'll figure it out later, you know. But we're told here that our first response should be, the impulse of our heart should be to bring them before God, asking for Him to bring them to repentance and growth. So we could say, train yourself to pray first. When you see sin, when you see sin in the life of the church, this was convicting for me as a pastor, because guess what my impulse is? We meet with Him. We try to counsel them. Get them into God's Word. John's saying pray. Intercede first. Train yourself to pray first. Even if it's in the moment where you see it happening. Lord, just shoot up a prayer. Lord, bring them under conviction. Lord, turn their hearts toward you in repentance. All right, third. Do you have a set time to pray? Do you have a set time? Do you have some time in your week actually set aside to pray? Now, I'm not, I'm not going to here to tell you how long or how many times or when it should be, but a principle out of this is, okay, you need a set time to make this happen. Prayer never just happens, as much as we wish it would. <laughs> Trust me. Um, we're told to devote ourselves to prayer, which means that we have to make a deliberate decision to pray. And just to encourage you, okay, prayer is, in my opinion, the hardest spiritual discipline to cultivate and stay consistent at. But we need to plan to pray, especially if intercession is this significant in the life of the body. So if you don't have a time set aside, put one down, try to stick to it, help each other stick to it. You know, ask yourself, are you praying? Are you interceding? Are you praying me to maturity? You know? um, set aside time to pray. All right, number four, pray specifically. So do you know what you're praying for specifically when you sit down to pray for people? My encouragement would be to be specific. Know whom you're praying for and what area of maturity that you're asking God to grow them in. Asking God just to kind of bless someone, like there's nothing wrong with that. You know, sometimes I even pray that. Nothing wrong with just asking God to bless them, grow them. But asking them to help them 
repent of sinful fear and grow in humble and joyful trust in a particularly fearful circumstance at work, that's even better, right? Because now we can start to measure that progress. We can see how God's answering that prayer. Tracking? So pray specifically would be my encouragement to you as you get to know the specific situations in your friends' lives. All right. So even though praying is challenging, when we sink our teeth into these principles, these first, these first two principles here, that prayer is life-giving, that prayer is fueled by knowing that we have God's ear, we, we know that we believe that He hears us, believe we're going to get what we ask for, and we, we're praying, and we know that it's life-giving for these hearing church members, when we sink our teeth into that, we're going to have incredible motivation to set aside time to pray. And you've got to know these things, right? That's why he's spelling them out for us, because he knows we're tempted to not know them, because you're just kind of drift. Think about prayer sort of optional at times. But when we know these things, um, it's going to incentivize us to pray. But there is a third motivation here, a third uh, principle, we might say, that motivates us to pray. And we could say it like this. Um, confident prayer knows its limits. Confident prayer knows its limits. Now hang with me here, because that might not be as intuitive. But I think you'll agree with me. Confident prayer knows its limits. Look in verse 16, the end of verse 16. He says, There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, I know this text raises a lot of questions. Um, Hopefully, we're kind of halfway there because we talked about the sin not unto death, right? Um, It raises lots of questions. What's the sin unto death? Is he telling us not to pray for these people? But I don't want you to miss the overall point that John's making. John's saying that with real, genuine believers, we can be confident that God will use our prayers for their growth. Like, we have a blank check for that. But we can't have the same level of confidence toward those who sin unto death. That's why he caveats himself right here in the middle of this paragraph. So, I'm saying confident prayer, it knows its limits. It knows what's guaranteed by God, and it knows what's not necessarily guaranteed by God. And it keeps its heart in check. So let's look quickly at just two of the pressing questions here in this text as we kind of wrap everything up. All right, first question is obvious. What is John talking about when he says there's a sin that leads to death? What is going on there? Well, it is the opposite of how he describes the sin of believers as a sin that's not leading to death. So if we kind of start there, if the converse is true then, he would be referring to a sin that leads to eternal death. And if we just think, what is that? Well, that's any sin outside of Christ. That's any sin outside of of Christ. The sin of anyone that is is outside of Christ's cleansing death. It would be the sin of the false teachers in 1 John. The sin of the Antichrist who refuse to repent, who harden themselves, who hate the brothers, who contradict the apostles' teaching. Now, some people have equated this sin unto death with the unforgivable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, Matthew 12. 
and maybe even the sin of apostasy in Hebrews 6. So that, that might be true. That may be a connection. We just don't have a lot to work off of here. That's why it's so debated uh, as far as like what this actually means. But I think if we stay within John, I think there's a, maybe a better option. I think that John is referring generically to the sin of those who abide in death, he said earlier in the letter. All those outside of Christ whose unrepentant sin is propelling them toward eternal death. I think that's, I think that's what's going on here. And so that brings us to our second question then, which is maybe even more pressing. Is John telling us not to pray for these people? Is John telling us not to pray for unbelievers? If that's the reading. Well, at first glance, the end of verse 16 seems to say that. Right? He says, I do not say, verse 16, that one should pray for that. So, let me back up a bit. If, if John here is referring to some extreme form of hardening or apostasy, or like the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, or the apostasy of like Hebrews 6, okay? if it's some extreme sin, then it would be appropriate for John to tell us not to pray for that. Are you tracking? be appropriate. They're kind of beyond repentance. And this is not foreign in the Bible. This, this happens at other points in Scripture. So give me give you some, at least one example. In the Bible, God has at certain times told His prophets, particularly Jeremiah, not to intercede for Israel once they had reached a certain point, once they had hardened themselves to a certain point. So take Jeremiah 7.16 as an example. Jeremiah 7.16, here's what he says. As for you, Jeremiah, do not pray for this people. Don't lift up a cry or a prayer for them. And do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. Because of their perpetually hardened heart and their idolatry, the Lord had purposed judgment to His covenant people. They had to go through it. That's what their sin had required of them. That generation had reached the point of no return, so to speak, to the point that God told Jeremiah to stop praying for them. But is this what John is saying here? It's a question. So that's biblical. Okay, we, there's, there's a certain category for that. But is that what he's saying here? Well, it could be, like I said, if what he means by the sin unto death is some extreme form of hardening committed by these false teachers who had apostatized. But I think there's another, and I think, better way to understand what John's trying to communicate here. I think it makes more sense to take the sin unto death as the sin of unbelievers generally, and I don't think John is forbidding praying for them. I think John is telling us we don't have the same promise attached to our prayers for unbelievers like we do our prayers for believers. Does that make sense? We don't have the same guarantee. We don't have the same blank check where God's going to answer that prayer the way that, in the exact way that we pray it. So let me just translate this for you a little more woodenly. And you can see there's, there's, this, there's this other option. Okay? So he says, there's a sin unto death. I am not speaking about that. How we could translate that. There's a sin unto death. I'm not talking about that. I'm not speaking about that in order that you should ask. So I'm not talking about your prayers for the sin of unbelief, the sin of, of unto death. I'm talking about your prayers for the believers. The sin, un, the sin not unto death. That's the one I'm referring to right now. 
John has just commanded us to pray expectantly for the sin not unto death, the sin of believers, expecting that God will answer it positively. And John knows that we may be tempted to apply that same promise, that blank check, to unbelievers, especially those unbelievers that we love. But John also knows that that the people God saves, that's his prerogative alone. We can't twist his arm. So, we are free to ask for God to do these things. We are free to plead with God for the salvation of our friends and our family that are outside of Christ. But we must entrust whatever outcome He decides to His good and merciful ways. God often answers our prayers for these people. We might even say that's, his, that's the norm. And we should be hopeful that He will answer our prayers but he doesn't always do that for his wise and good purposes. Sometimes God gives rebels over to their persistent rebellion beyond the point of return as described in Hebrews 6 and Matthew 12. And it just hits home when we know them and when we love them. And just to be clear, Jesus commands us to pray for unbelievers. So it's not an option. We're commanded to pray for our enemies, Matthew 5.44. Jesus models this for us when he asks God to forgive those who crucified him while he's on the cross. In Luke 23.34. Paul models the same heart too when he describes how he prays for the hardened Jewish unbelievers in Romans 9 and 10. Listen to this. Listen to, the, to, the, to how Paul agonizes and yet keeps in check the sovereignty of God and salvation. He says this, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. There is no more dramatic way that you could say that. That's the height of of expression. Then in chapter 10 he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to them is that they may be saved. That is what his internal agony, those are the prayers coming out of his mouth for his kinsmen. Wishing that he could be cut off forever from Christ for their salvation, but he knows he can't do that. He knows he can't accomplish it. God has to accomplish it, and it's his prerogative alone. Paul will go on to say in these chapters in Romans that God is completely just, he's completely fair in his dealings with sinful men. And he's free to show mercy. He's free. He's free to show mercy to whomever he wills. Romans 9, 14-18. So we see this very phenomenon modeled in the New Testament. This fervent intercession for unbelievers. And yet not presuming on the outcome. Or accusing God of injustice if He chooses not to answer. God is perfectly good in all of His ways. He is good and does good. He is perfectly wise in His designs. And we can trust Him in it all. 
as hard as it is. And John's point here, though, is not for us to get all tangled up in this stuff. He's simply saying that confident prayer is confident only about the outcomes that God has promised. We hold everything else with an open hand. But we take his promises of growth for fellow believers to the bank. All right, we can say it like that. We, the confident prayer, it knows its limits. It knows its limits. All right, so there's three principles. If we believe them, they will light a fire in us to get after intercessory prayer. Agreed? If these principles become convictional for us, we will fight to pray. We will make time to pray if we believe these. And as we do, as we pray, as we become more diligent, we will taste the sweet fruit right here in our ministry. We will see our fellow church members overcoming sin and temptation. We will see our balanced friends living glorious and fruitful lives for Christ. And we'll even likely see others come to faith in Christ for the very first time as we get after praying. And guess what abounds in this? God's glory. God delights to see His people pray. In fact, John is just echoing what Jesus taught in John 15. He says if... if I'm paraphrasing, but if my words abide in you, you abide in me and my words abide in you. So there's the will of God. Ask whatever you wish. God will answer. That's what he's saying. And why? So that God is glorified as you bear much fruit. God loves his glory and he loves to bless his people. So next week, we're going to apply this message because a lot of you are going to be gone. All right, you're going to be gone to spring break, so we're going to take some time. We're not going to we're not going to move forward in First John, and we're just going to spend some time praying for re, for each other and for those that we know. So I'll kind of give a recap of this message, some of these principles, and then we'll we'll take some time and um, divide up and and pray together for those people. So if you're here next Thursday, come on out. We're going to be meeting anyway, and uh, would love to love to pray together, and let that be sort of a catalyst to our our intercessions um, in private. All right, let's pray. Father, what incentive to pray? We confess, I confess, uh, how I needed these truths, these principles. I confess how uh, infrequent at times, diligent, specific intercession is in my life. But Lord, there is wind in my sails tonight to to pray, to orient my life afresh and anew uh, to the priority of prayer. And I pray that the same is true in all of our lives and that as we give ourselves to prayer in these ways, consistently, fervently, that we'll see you producing fruit in unparalleled ways in our ministry. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.